0: I mean, you listen to them. As I said the other day, there's a bit in the Bible that reads uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name. And uh, although this is a small audience, I can see it's a select one. I just wanted you to know, before Hugh Seidman introduces the poets, and it's a great honour to have a distinguished American critic and poet doing this for us, I just wanted to point out that this visit of the English poets is perhaps the one exercise in private enterprise for the Britain Salutes New York operation in that it hasn't been subsidised or sponsored by any commercial undertaking or by government funds, British or American. It's simply subsidised by the Compton Fund, a legacy left by the late Dr Joseph Compton for the advancement of English poetry overseas. And that's why we're here. We're grateful to you for coming. And I'll ask Hugh Seidman to introduce the poet.
1: Uh, thank you, Lawrence Cotterell, who uh, on behalf of American PEN, I'd like to thank very much. He's been working very hard, I know, last week and this week, uh, to squire the poets around and see that everything works out in good order. So thank you, Lawrence. Um, I'm here on behalf of American PEN to uh, just say a few words about the four poets. Um, last week they read from their own work here, some of you may have heard that, and today they will be reading from uh, other contemporary British poets, and uh, they themselves will introduce the poets they will uh, read from. And I will just now say a few words uh, about each poet. Craig Rain, who is uh, the first reader, who is sitting over there in the blue shirt, has published uh, three books of poetry. His most recent—I uh, don't think it's published yet—a uh, free translation, but unpublished in America. Unpublished in America a free translation by the Salamander Press. Um, and he is also the poetry editor at uh, the publishing house of Faber and Faber. Uh, Gavin Yurt, who is seated here, uh, his most recent book is *More Little Ones* by the Anvil Press. He is also the author of nine other books of poetry, including The Collected Ewart, 1933-1980, to published by Hutchinson. Uh, Patricia Beer, who's sitting on the end, uh, will publish The Lie of the Land. Uh, Hutchinson will publish that in February of 1983. She has written several other books of poems, including Selected Poems, also by Hutchinson, as well as Criticism, Fiction, and Nonfiction. She was brought up and currently lives in Devon. And the last reader, Danny Apsey, who is sitting second next to Patricia, uh, is, his most recent volume is Way Out in the Center, published by Hutchinson. And he will, that book will also be published by the University of Georgia in a few months. He is the author of Collected Poems, published by Hutchinson and the University of Pittsburgh, as well as plays and prose. He is a practicing physician as well as a writer, so I now give you the first poet, Craig Rain.
2: I read for about ten minutes. Um, we were asked to, to to read some British poets. I'm going to read from two Irish poets um, who are British in the sense that they both um, come from Northern Ireland, um, and Northern Ireland is still a part of the United Kingdom. Um, so I don't think either of them are particularly happy about this state kind of affairs. The first poet I'm going to read from is, is, is a man called Tom Paulin, um, He was born in Leeds in 1948, but actually brought up and educated um, in Northern Ireland. Um, he's a Protestant. The other um, poet I'm going to read from is a Catholic. Um, I mention this um, really to explain the first poem I'm going to read, which is called Desert Martin. Um, Desert Martin is a, a small town. Um, in the north, north of Ireland, which is completely and um, obsessively Protestant. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this Tom Paulin, the man who wrote this, is, is, is a writer who, now, at one point, felt quite sympathetic towards um, Northern Ireland staying as part of Great Britain, um, and has now changed his mind. The reason he felt sympathetic was because there were certain aspects of the Protestant culture which he admired, um, a sort of austere grace. I mean, if you wanted to think of an image, you think of something clean and pure, um, like an iron, linen tablecloth, that kind of thing. And what he feels, I think, is that um, the Protestant society has been driven into a corner, rather, and that it's actually all its graces have been ruined. Um, And he told me that this place doesn't march in, He'd actually driven through it. And it's a very, very small town. I mean, you could hardly call it a town more small like a village. But it is covered with Union Jacks. I mean, if you can imagine a town in which every house is displaying four or five Union Jacks, and they're all blazing in the wind. And these people are declaring that they want to stay part of the United Kingdom, part of, belong to England. Now, and uh, this is his attitude towards it. And at the end of the poem, He makes a parallel between um, various other extreme societies which you will recognize, Iran for instance. Um, um, I want to explain um, what a jock squaddy is. A jock is a a Scotsman and a squaddy means a soldier. I mean, i.e., he's he's part of the British Army um, in Ulster who are keeping the peace. Desert martin. At noon, in the dead centre, of a fate, between Draperstown and Magara Felt, this bitter village shows the flag in a baked, absolute September light. Here, the word has withered to a few parched certainties, and the charred stubble tightens like a black belt, a crop of Bibles. Because this is the territory of the law, I drive across it with the pile of knowledge, the owl of Minerva in a hired car. A jock-squaddy glances down the street and grins, happy and expendable like a brass cartridge. He is a useful thing, almost at home, and yet not quite, not quite. It's a lime's nest, this place, I see a plain, Presbyterian grace, sour, then hardens as a free, strenuous spirit changes to a servile defiance that whines and shrieks for the bondage of the letter. It shouts for the big man to lead his wee people to a clean white prison, their scorched tomorrow. Masculine Islam, the rule of the just, Egyptian sand dunes and geometry, a theology of rifle butts and executions. These are the places where the spirit dies. And now, in Desert Martin's sandy light, I see a culture of twigs and birdships waving a gaudy flag with love and curses. Um, this book, Liberty Tree isn't, isn't in fact published yet. Um, not in America, but uh, it will be in England in June. Um, and many of the poems are about the relationship between a colony um, and, as it were, the colonial power. Um, I'm going to read a poem now called A Rum Cove the South Coast. What Paul in these poems is imagined analogs or inventions, so his colonial situation. So for instance, this poem is based on the Falklands. It was actually written before we ever invad- reinvaded the Falklands and reclaimed them. Um, so it's a sort of fantastic version of the Falklands. Um, I ought to explain that LOL 301, um, about halfway through the poem, um, stands for the Loyal Orange Lodge. Um, in Ulster, um, the orange men who are the Presbyterians are Protestants who believe in staying part of it, and have these lodges, and they're rather like lodges, Um lodges. Um, but they're designed to, as it were, generate loyalty um, to the United Kingdom. And w- w- what's essentially happening here is that Ulster and um, the, the, the Falklands are cu- coming together um, in the poem to make one sort of fantastic reality. Um, the prime banner is the, is the flag, the invented flag of the culture. The Romco, the South Coast. On the Barrack Islands, far out in the South Atlantic, the great-great-grandson, Sol Grass, of Nelson's last bosun, is packing crawfish into a thick barnacle teak box marked Britain Canning Factors Elimitated. It is Swart Lock and coach chief that glim in the top left-hand corner of Bold Betty, the prime banner that longs to LOL 301. Like Jib, sorry, that's Gibraltar. Like Jib, like the god called Malud, and those tars behind the locked doors whistling Britannia rules in their slow andering with worn and corded tools, he's hmm. firm, Soulbroud, to the core. The genius of these used islands where no maritime elegists sing of resolution or independence, with their harbour masters' stores, clagged mountains of ashy shale, and a small bird that no one has named, a flightless, timorous landrail whose cry is rusted, hard, like chains. The landrail is uh, an Irish bird, no? but here it's said to be without slides. Um, in other words, it's is a completely crushed colonial society. Um, I think I'm going to have to go very quickly because I'm running over. Um, the next quote I want to read is from is, is, um, uh, another Irish poet called Paul Muldoon, who's a Catholic. Um, and I'll read you a very simple poem um, first called Cuba, which is written about the time of the Cuba crisis. Um, and the way it affected people, um, that they might die um, imminently. Cuba. My eldest sister arrived home that morning in her white muslin evening dress. Who the hell do you think you are? Running out to dances and next to nothing. As though we hadn't enough bother with the world at an end, if not at war. My father was pounding the breakfast table. Those Yankees were touch and go as it was. If you'd heard Patton in Armagh, but this Kennedy's merely an Irish man, so he's not much better than ourselves. And him with only to say the word. If you've got anything on your mind, maybe you should make your peace with God. There she be the confession? I could hear May from beyond the curtain. Let me, father, for I have sinned. I told a lie once, I was disobedient once. And father, a boy touched me once. Tell me, child, was this touch a modest? Did he touch your breast? For example. He brushed against me, father, very gently. And I'll finish with another mountain pen. This is um obviously has Irish resonances since it's called truth and it's about the fraternization which took place between the German and the English troops on well, Christmas, the first Christmas of the nineteen forty War. And it's simply a description. Truth. It begins with one or two soldiers and one or two following with hampers over their shoulders. They might be off wildfowling as they would another Christmas day. So gingerly they pick their steps. No one seemed sure of what to do. All stop when one stops. A fire gets lit. Some spread their great coat on the frozen ground. Polish vodka, fruit and bread are broken out and passed around. The air of an old German song, the rules of patience are the secrets they share before long. They draw on their last cigarette, as Friday night lovers, when it's over, might get up from their mattresses to congratulate each other and exchange names and addresses. Thank you.
3: Well, uh, my name is Gavin Ewart. I'm the second poet to read, and in fact I am uh, by name and nature a Scottish poet, but because I was educated in the south of England, I can't really read you Scots poems, because I wouldn't do them justice. I'm therefore concentrating on three, um, I think, very good English poets. And first of all, Philip Larkin, who could arguably be called the, the best living British poet. This is a poem called High Windows and um, if any of you are students of literature um, and have a preconception that British poets are um, limited, conservative and so on, um, I think some of what Larkin writes uh, might shake that conviction because he is very colloquial, he's not mealy-mouthed, he uses slang, he uses quite crude language occasionally and is by no means the sort of over-educated sissy that uh, some American poets have taught us to be high windows when I see a couple of kids and guess he's fucking her and she's taking pills or wearing a diaphragm I know this is the paradise everyone old has dreamed of all their lives. Bonds and gestures pushed to one side like an outdated combine harvester and everyone young going down the long slide to happiness endlessly. I wonder if anyone looked at me 40 years back and thought, that'll be the life, no God anymore or sweating in the dark about hell and that, or having to hide what you think of the priest, he and his lot will all go down the long slide like three bloody birds. And immediately, rather than words, comes the thought of high windows, the sun-comprehending glass, and beyond it, the deep blue air that shows nothing, and is nowhere, and is endless. Well... Larkin is mainly a rhyming poet. That one rhymes in a fairly loose way for him. He's usually very, very much more tight and compact in his form. And this is one of the traditions in British poetry, uh, whereas American poetry stems very largely, quite a lot of it anyhow, from Whitman and is very much more unconstrained. British poetry has never terribly much deserted its forms, its rhymes, and its rhythms. A great example, of course, is Auden, and he really revitalised a lot of the old forms by using everyday colloquial language in the actual metres and stanzas that had been used by um, poets 300 years ago. Now, this next little poem is, is by Larkin again. It's a very simple one, Uh, It helps to know about a similar poem by Stevenson, the one that says, um, Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill, at the end of it. It's a sort of uh, Mount Dimethyst kind of poem. And in it, it says, This be the verse you grave for me. And this poem of Larkins refers to it. It's called, This be the verse. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf get out as early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself." <laughs> that's, Larkin, that's very much Larkin's view, a sort of uh, very pessimistic, gloomy attitude to life, but very effective poetically, of course. Um, my next poet was born in 1937, and he's, he's again, um, he, he's a um, of Larkin's generation, and he's John Fuller, the son of Roy Fuller, who's also a very good poet, but um, his son is in some ways of more interest to me because I I think he's more sort of free and easy in his attitude and not so uh, hemmed in by form, because form can hem you in as well as liberate. So this poem is really about a, a, a very young girl in England who is first of all a schoolgirl, and then she works in Reading in a biscuit factory, Huntley and Palmer, if you know the name. And uh, so this is really written, I think in fact it was written for music. And therefore I try to read it so that I get some of the musical rhythms into the reading. It's in different sections. Linda, Linda, slender and pretty biscuit girl in a biscuit packing the biscuits in paper boxes what do you dream of, how do you dream the cutters rise and fall and rise and cut the chocolate, the coconut the orange princess and the gypsy cream the biscuits gather and the boxes shut but things are never what they seem in the school the bells are ringing in the playground girls are singing lily, paper, hard-boiled eggs Mr. Swain has bandy legs. Linda, Linda, rude and sweet. Skipping girl in a skipping street. Singing and skipping all summer long. Worms in the classroom, worms in the hall. Mr. Swain will eat them all. The cutters fall and rise and fall. And biscuits are unending like a wall. The school is over and the summer's dream. The day the sun invented flowers again. Her heart unfolded with the spring. Paul had appeared, and nothing was the same. The railway's on its sleepers, the river's in its bed. All Berkshire is beneath us, and the sky is overhead. Linda crossed the platform to the train. Her warm little mouth reached up to his and kissed and whispered his exciting name. What was it like before we met? What did we ever do? Can't think think of anything like it or anyone like you. Weaving fingers find out that they fit, and all the secret pleasures they commit are like the touch of flowers in the rain. A whistle from the primus, the water's nice and hot. I've got the milk and sugar and tea bags in the pot. Sometimes there are sandwiches, and sometimes there are not. But fishing is a fiddle, and Paul requires his tea. He hasn't time to make it, so he leaves it all to me. And there are always biscuits. I bring along the tin. I think it might be useful to put the fishes in. Fishing on the island, only me and him. Fishing on the island all the afternoon. The river flowing by us, full to the brim. And the fishing is over all too soon. When I packed the basket, was there something I forgot? It says plum on the label. And Paul likes apricot. I usually forget things. Sometimes I do not. But fishing is a fiddle, and Paul requires his tea. He hasn't time to make it, so he leaves it all to me. And there are always biscuits. I bring along the tin. I think it might be useful to put the fishes in. Fishing on the island, only me and him. Fishing on the island all the afternoon. The river flowing by us, full to the brim, and the fishing is over all too soon. The river's full of fishes. You'd think he'd catch a lot. I'd call out, have you got one? And Paul will answer, what? Sometimes he will land one, and most times he will not. But fishing is a fiddle, and Paul requires his tea. And when his basket's empty, he holds it out to me and grins to say he's sorry. I love that silly grin. I find it very useful to put my kisses in. Kissing on the island, only me and him. Kissing on the island all the afternoon. The river flowing by us, full to the brim. And the kissing is over all too soon. When we went down to Maidenhead, poor Hattie's clarinet. I tried to do the steering, and we both got very wet, but how he blew that licorice stick. The music on a thread rose like a nest of rooks above his black and curly head. There's a rookery at Dorney, but all the rooks have gone, flapping their wings like overcoats they're struggling to put on. I love their wild black music, but all the rooks have gone. We took a tent, and Mum was mad. Poor Hattie's clarinet. I had this spoon and china mug. We made a fine duet. But how he blew that wooden throat like a musical millionaire, the black night sound inside forced out in squiggles on the air. There's a rookery at Dorney, but all the rooks have gone, and clouds blow over empty trees where once the summer shone, and Paul and his black music and all his love have gone. Linda went out in her wedges. The day was average and masses of water were moving under Cavisham Bridge. Paul had promised to meet her and take her on the river. She looked again at her wristwatch and gave a little shiver. But wasn't he worth forgiving? The hour ticked slowly on, and she threw her wriggly paper down at a frowning swan. Several boys passed by her, and all of them managed to stare. But Linda looked right through them as if she didn't care. You believe him if he tells you. You think he's ever so nice. And it's hard to find he can never say the same thing twice. Promises break like biscuits. Nothing keeps forever. But time runs on and on and on, deep as the lying river. Linda, Linda, older and wiser, far from childhood in a biscuit town, making biscuits where the Thames winds down, under the eyes of the supervisor, under the hands of the factory clock. Tick, tick crisp and crumbly, thin and thick. The cutters rise and fall and rise, cutting out, surprise, surprise, the chocolate, the coconut, the orange princess and the gypsy cream. But things are never what they seem. The trains pass clanking on the track, distinct and jewelled in the quiet night. Tick, 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 in life's absurd arithmetic, and Linda in the tunnel of her dream. All night is restless, staring back as wisps of the dragon drift into the wind and smaller and smaller Paul is waving, smaller and po- smaller Paul is standing there and Linda dreams and dreams and dreams under the hands of the bedside clock, till bacon smells are in the air and combs tug sleepily through morning hair, and nothing is ever what it seems. Well, That's a poem for music, of course. Uh, The next one I'm going to read, because I think I have just about got time, uh, is a poem called Valentine. It's got the sort of quality that the best lyrics of Cole Porter and uh, similar American songwriters have, I think. Valentine. The things about you I appreciate may seem indelicate. I'd like to find you in the shower and chase the soap for half an hour. I'd like to have you in my power and see your eyes dilate. I'd like to have your back to scour and other parts to lubricate. Sometimes I feel it is my fate to chase you screaming up a tower, or make you cower by asking you to differentiate Nietzsche from Schopenhauer. I'd like successfully to guess your weight and win you at a fate. I'd like to offer you a flower. I like the hair upon your shoulders falling like water over boulders. I like the shoulders, too. They are essential. Your collarbones have great potential, I would like all your particulars in folders marked confidential. I like your cheeks, I like your nose, I like the way your lips disclose, the neat arrangement of your teeth, half above and half beneath in rows. I like your eyes, I like their fringes, the way they focus on me gives me twinges. Your upper arms drive me berserk, I like the way your elbows work on hinges, I like your wrists, I like your glands, I like the fingers on your hands. I'd like to teach them how to count and certain things you might exchange, something familiar for something strange. I'd like to give you just the right amount and get some change. I like it when you tilt your cheek up. I like the way you nod and hold a teacup. I like your legs when you unwind them. Even in trousers, I don't mind them. I like each softly molded kneecap. I like the little crease behind them. I'd always know without a recap where to find them. I like the sculpture of your ears. I like the way your profile disappears whenever you decide to turn and face me. I'd like to cross two hemispheres and have you chase me. I'd like to smuggle you across frontiers or sew with you at night into tangiers. I'd like you to embrace me. I'd like to see you ironing your skirt and canceling other dates. I'd like to button up your shirt I like the way your chest inflates. I'd like to soothe you when you're hurt or frightened senseless by invertebrates. I'd like you even if you were malign and had a yen for sudden homicide. I'd let you put insecticide into my wine. I'd even like you if you were the bride of Frankenstein or something ghoulish out of Mamoulian's Jekyll and Hyde. I'd even like you as my Julian of Norwich or Kathleen Ahoulian's How melodramatic if you were something muttering in attics, like Mrs. Rochester or a student of Boolean mathematics. You are the end of self-abuse. You are the eternal feminine. I'd like to find a good excuse to call on you and find you in. I'd like to put my hand beneath your chin and see you grin. I'd like to taste your Charlotte Russe. I'd like to feel my lips upon your skin. I'd like to make you reproduce. I'd like you in my confidence. I'd like to be your second look. I'd like to let you try the French defense and mate you with my rook. I'd like to be your preference, and hence, I'd like to be around when you unhook. I'd like to be your only audience, the final name in your appointment book, your future tense. Well, great uh, virtuosity, I think. And <coughs> when I read a uh, John Fuller's poetry, I always think this is Rose Royce's poetry. It's written as well as it could be written. The next poet is James Fenton, who's uh, just slightly younger. In fact, he's what? Well, no, he's, he's more than just slightly younger. I think he was born in 1949. Fuller um, was born in 1937. Larkin uh, is now, what is he, 50, 50 years old. Um, so if you work that out, that goes back somewhere too. Uh, The Skip I took my life and threw it on the skip Reckoning the next-door neighbours wouldn't mind If my life hitched or lift to the council tip With their dry rot and rubble What you find with skips is The whole community joins in Old mattresses appear, doors kind of drift Along with all that won't fit in the bin And what the bin men can't be fished to shift I threw away my life, and there it lay, and grew quite sodden. What a dreadful shame, clucked some old bag and sucked her teeth. The way, the young these days, no values, me I blame, but I blame no one. Quality control had loused it up, and that was that, Enough said. I couldn't stick at home, I took a stroll, and passed the skip, and left my life for dead. Without my life, the beer was just as foul. The landlord still as filthy as his wife. The chicken in the basket was an owl, and no one said, "'E, Jim, lad, was the life." Well, I got back that night, the worse for wear, but still just capable of single vision. Looked in the skip, my life—it wasn't there. Some bugger nicked it without my permission. Okay, so I got angry and began to shout and woke the street. Okay, okay, and I was sick all down the neighbour's van. And I disgraced myself on the parquet. And then, you know how if you've had a few, you'll wake at dawn all healthy like sea breezes, raring to go and thinking, clever you, you've got away with it. And then, oh Jesus, it hits you. Well, that morning, just at six, I woke, got up and looked down at the skip. There lay my life, still sodden on the bricks. There lay my poor old life, arse over tip. Or was it mine? Still dressed. I went downstairs and took a long, cool look. The truth was dawning. Someone had just exchanged my life for theirs. Poor fool, I thought. I should have left a warning. Some bastard saw my life and thought it nicer than what he had. Yet what he'd had seemed fine. He'd never caught his fingers in the slicer, the way I'd managed in that life of mine. His life lay glistening in the rain, neglected, yet still a decent and authentic life. Some people I can think of, I reflected, would take that thing as soon as you'd say knife. It seemed a shame to miss a chance like that. I brought the life in, dried it by the stove. It looked so fetching, stretched out on the mat. I tried it on. It fitted like a glove. And now, when some local bat drops off the twig and new folk take the house and pull up floors, and knock down walls and hire some kind of big container, say a skip for their old doors. I watch it like a hawk, and every day I make at least, oh, half a dozen trips. I furnished an existence in that way. You'd not believe the things you find on skips.
4: Whose work I'd like to read is Douglas Dunn. He was born in 1942. Uh, uh, <laughs> from whose work I'd like to read is Douglas Dunn. He was born in 1942, he was Scott, uh, which is very relevant to the book, to his first book, um, Perry Street, in that it seems to be irrelevant because uh, Perry Street is in Hull in England and Douglas Dunn has frequently insisted that he was at that time, though writing about an urban English environment, he was, he was working towards, and in a sense already writing about, um, his country Scottish background. He wasn't quite ready to speak of it in those terms. Um, he defended himself vigorously. From being an outsider, uh, because of concentration on Perry Street, which was a quality mean, sordid, uh, very shabby street in Hull, as he describes it, I've never seen it, but I take his description to be accurate. Um, he was concentrating so much on it that he didn't feel himself to be an outsider, yeah. and. Certainly the involvement he expresses doesn't suggest that at all. He has also defended himself, I think quite unnecessarily, from the charge of exploiting these people whom he describes and whom to an extent he despises um, because he feels that they um, had real complicity in being what they are and adopting... Um, a sort of culture which was uh, essentially part and not native to them and not necessary to them. He has some um, fairly harsh things to say. All of this makes Terry Street's first book an extremely interesting and complicated volume. I've chosen one of the Terry Street Poems first, uh, A Death in Terry Street. There are some old women who want to live here forever, but if they are to die, this is the place for it. They take a pride in dying where they always live, preferably tended by sons and neighbors with suits. If Terry Street was the only place, they could not be disposed of here, unless men dug through brick and concrete, or lowered them into drains ground them in their yards, raised them on tall scaffolds for the birds to eat, or cut them up and flushed them down the toilet. Eventually, they might find words to say that fitted these new ceremonies. The old men having stayed in for days, leafing through dictionaries. What a thing that would be, the complete place, with priests and undertakers, livestock and fields from the shapeless street, a bad address. The black cars take her to a better district. The neighbors watch her go from doorways and windows, learning a lesson of all times and men, that when you die, you have to leave and walk with giant footsteps from the street that is like dark cliffs of sand, mocking the sanitary inspectors, Bypassing the housing list. And another one from Terry Street. A poem in praise of the British. This follows on very much, I think, from the uh, first poem. It's, again, a most interestingly complicated poem. I did. Um, I'm hampered by uh, reason of my own accent, which I couldn't do anything about I wanted to. Um, I'm hampered by that in expressing uh, Douglas Dunn's own voice, but of course that, that's part of praying for. I hope the words will come across even without the um, proper accent. I'm no mimic, I can't do accents, and uh, so i just have to read it as best I can but it is a poem I greatly admire because it, it conveys a kind of uh, confusion of thought. It sounds nostalgic, but it isn't really. Um, it sounds idealistic, and I think in a way that is probably more what it is. He's certainly not timing for a lost paradise, for a lost society, that he wishes were back, certainly not That so he can see, he can see some charm in it, there's a great deal of of sheer charm in the poem, it's more a longing for some kind of, um, some kind of order, some kind of uh, goodness, I, perhaps one shouldn't use abstract language um, in this connection, but I'm sure you'll see what I mean when I read the poem. A poem in praise of the British. The regiments of dumb gunners go to bed early. The soldiers, sleepy after running up and down the private British army meadows, clean the daisies off their mammoth boots. The general goes pink in his bath, reading lives of the great croquet players. At all the shops, besides foot stamping squares, young officers drink tea and touch their toes. Heavy rain everywhere washes up the bones of British. Where did all that power come from? The wish to be inert, but rich and strong, to have too much. Where does glory come from? And when it's gone, why are old soldiers sour and the banks empty? But how sweet is the weakness after empire in the garden of a flat, safe country shire, watching the beauty of the random, fair, superfluous drifting as if in sleep to the ranks of memorialists, memorialists that wait like cabs to take us off down easy street, to the Redcoat Army and the flags and treaties in the marvellous archives preserved like leaves in books. The archivist wears a sword and clips moustache. He files our memories more precious than light to be of easy access to politicians of the right who are now sleeping like undertakers on black cushions, thinking of inflammatory speeches and the adoring mob. What a time would this be for true decadence, walking new-seated with trim whiskers swinging our gold-knob walking sticks to the best restaurant, or riding in close-backed black carriages to the street salons to meet the women made by art, the fashionably beautiful, or in the garden read our sonnets by the pool, beside small roses, next week's buttonholes. In this old country, we are falling asleep under clouds with are like wide-brimmed hats. This is just right. The old pederasts on the Brighton promenade fall asleep to dream of summer seductions. The wind blows their hats away and they vanish into the archives of life where greatness has gone. With the dainty teacup and the black gum and dancing cocoons in the fields of heaven. There are two from a later uh, volume, Barbarians, but I'd like to um, save those for the second programme. The second uh, poet I've chosen is D.J. Enright, Dennis Enright. He was born in 1920, a very versatile man, Apart from his poetry, I, I personally um, appreciate him most for his anthology. He is really a most inspired anthologist. The um, most recent one about death, I, I must say I haven't actually had the book in my hands yet, but the reviews with their very um, tempting quotations, uh, both from the extract he chose and from his um, own introduction, uh, one reviewer pointed out that uh, Dennis himself had pointed out that death is not the in thing, is at least the coming thing. Mm. And, uh, I think someone who could make a remark like that, everyone should rush to read the anthology, I certainly intend to myself. But it is for his poetry of course that one admires him most. I'd like to start with reading a group of poems, which I think fits in very well with uh, Douglas Dunn's poems, because of course, um, Douglas is, in those poems I read, is, well, the first one anyway, perhaps, um, uh, perhaps not the second, is essentially examining the whole question of social class, which is a matter of such great concern, apparently, to the British, It never seems like it's probably to an individual, but uh, we are exceptionally class conscious. And Dennis has, in this book which I like very much indeed, The Terrible Shield, has explored, not um, in any uh, philosophical way, the problems anybody living in Britain at this moment who was born in a class from which he or she later, and I'm going to use the word escape, because um, that is is how in many ways it seems to me, um, who has escaped from the confined and limited uh, territory in which he was born and brought up. But these... um, these poems I like so much because they, they are a very accurate and precise description, most of them, of the sort of childhood I myself had. I'll start with the ones called Bad Things and Good Things. Two bad things in infant school, learning bad grammar then getting blamed for it, learning our father which art in heaven, bowing our heads to a hurried nurse and hearing the nits rattle down on the paper. And two good things. Listening to Miss Anthony, our lovely miss, charming as dumb with the wind in the willows, dancing cylinders round and dancing and dancing it, and getting it perfect forever. This one is called Class. I can't help it, I still get mad when people say that class doesn't mean a thing and to mention one's working-class origins is inverted snobbery. The wife of a teacher at school, she was mother of one of my classmates, was genuinely enraged when I won a scholarship. She stopped me in the street to tell me, with a loudness I suppose was upper class, that Cambridge was not for the likes of me, nor was long hair, nor the verse. I wrote for the school mag. Her sentiments were precisely those of the working class. Unanimity on basic questions accounts for why we never had the revolution. Facts of life. I had two white mice. Then I had scores of baby mice, naked and pink little things, dead or alive or half-eaten. Those two small mice did me more harm than all the pornography in the world. My father took them away. The dog went too, him we liked, but he was a creature of the open spaces. He needed long hours of exercise in the park. He went back to the country. I hope that was where he went. And finally, um, this one. Another Christmas. Another Christmas was coming. Father thought of a way of enriching it for us. He recalled that on the Somme, he had carried from the battlefield a wounded officer by the name of Crawford. It was now a household name. He wrote to the gentleman in question, mentioning the not-so-distant incident and the coming of Christmas. In return, there came a free packet of assorted biscuits. They were consumed and no doubt enjoyed. though felt to be less than they might have been.
5: Uh, we're running rather late, so uh, I'm just going to read two poems. I was intending to read um, poems by uh, this half, by Vernon Scannell and John Ormond, mainly because they're friends of mine and also I admire their poetry. And in the second half, I was going to read Ted Hughes and um, Bernard Spencer. Uh, So I'll reverse that, if I may, and just read um, one poem of Ted Hughes, and you all know. and it's a short poem. I want to read it because, can you hear me all right? Is it
2: okay?
5: Is it okay at the back? You can't hear me.
0: Can
5: you change, Gavin? Yes. On one occasion uh, in London, I'd um, not long... Come back from Israel on a tour with, uh, among other people, Dennis Enright, whom Patricia Beer read poetry of, and also uh, Ted Hughes. And um, each time he read this particular poem, I was particularly moved. In fact, uh, Robert Lowell um, was contemptuous of uh, most British poetry, I think, and uh, when he When I said how much I liked uh, Ted Hughes's poetry, he said, well, read one of his poems. And uh, this is the poem I read. And afterwards, uh, Robert Lowell said, that's awful. Uh, Well, I'm going to read it again, and I hope you will be kinder. How Water Began to Play. Water wanted to live. It went to the sun. It came weeping back. Water wanted to live. It went to the trees. They burned. It came weeping back. They rotted. It came weeping back. Water wanted to live. It went to the flowers. They crumpled. It came weeping back. It wanted to live. It went to the womb. It met blood. It came weeping back. It went to the womb. It met knife. It came weeping back. It went to the womb, it met maggot and rottenness, it came weeping back, it wanted to die. It went to time, it went through the stone door, it came weeping back. It went searching through all space for nothingness, it came weeping back, it wanted to die. Till it had no weeping left, it lay at the bottom of all things, utterly worn out, utterly clear. The other poet, uh, Bernard Spencer, died at the same time as Sylvia Plough. Uh, alas, she is not as well-known as, sh- he is not as well-known as he should be. Um, here's a love poem called Part of Plenty. When she carries food to the table, and stoops down, doing this out of love, and lays soup with its good tickling smell, or fry winking from the fire, and I look up, perhaps from a book I am reading, or other work. There's an importance of beauty which can't be accounted for by there and then, and attacks me, but not separately from the welcome of the food or the grace of her arms. When she puts a sheaf of tulips in a jug and pours in water and presses to one side the upright stems and leaves that you hear creak or loosens them or holds them up to show me so that I see the tangle of their necks and cups with the curls of her hair and the body they are held against and the stalk of the small waist rising and flowering in the shape of breast whether in the bringing of the flowers or the food she offers plenty and is part of plenty and whether i see her stooping or leaning with the flowers what she does is ages old and she is not simply no but lovely in that way
4: about five or ten minutes, and we'll be back again, okay? Sure, are you available for questions or later, how about after after about (laughs) 15?
2: Right, and then this will be just for him when he just needs to speak and be safe. One time, sometime, never again, oh Chud. To bossy Saltman from way back, the islands are a spatched necklace of prickly heat, boils, and a choggy boredom. Big Ben man, where is? asks the girl whose white teeth have the blank snowy dazzle of coconut flesh. Just look what we've made of your damned islands, the answer. They are images now, never again, old chug, images of our own disgust. Now I'll read two very short poems um, from Paul Maltin it's one called Bran Bran is the name of a dog Bran while he looks into the eyes of women who have let themselves go while they sigh and they moan for pure joy he weeps for the boy on that small farm who takes an oatmeal Labrador in his arms who knows all there is of rapture Um, this Paul is actually published in the States by Wake Forest, um, if anybody's um, interested. Um, and this is a short poem called Making the Move. It has a reference to Pascal in it, who believed that um, the void was to his left side and had to be avoided. There was a great chasm there. And it's actually about the breakup of a marriages, really, and how you have to separate. You know, One person gets one stereo speaker, and the other person gets the other one. Um, and the actual works are chopped into, more or less making the move. When Ulysses braved the wine-dark sea, he left his bow with Penelope, who would bend for no one but himself. I edge along the bookshelf, past bad Lord Byron, Raymond Chandler, Howard Hughes, The Hidden Years, past Blaise Pascal, who, bound in hide, divined the void to his left side. Such books, as one may think one owns, unloose themselves like stones and clatter down into this wider gulf between myself and my good wife. A primus stove, a sleeping bag, the bow I bought through a catalogue when I was 13 or 14 that would bend and break for anyone. Its boyish length of maple upon maple, unseasoned, and on supple. Were I embarking on that wine-dark sea, I would bring my bow along with me. Thank
5: you.
3: I'm going to uh, read poems by uh, Philip Larkin, whom I take to be the best-living British poet. And uh, then poems by John Fuller, one poem by John Fuller and one poem by James Fenton, a good deal, uh, younger, the last two. Now, uh, Larkin is uh, very typically British in that he's terribly pessimistic and gloomy, and yet he keeps on going in spite of all the terrible things that he thinks are happening everywhere. And uh, I think to a certain extent a good many people In England in particular, Um, they take a great satisfaction in uh, feeling depressed. And uh, I think gloom is probably the word. Um, The thing about British poetry is that um, where it differs largely from American poetry is the fact that most of it is written in fairly fairly strict forms, not all of it. There are poets like Peter Redgrove, who is not, I'm afraid, represented in this gathering, but he's a a, a very much more um, uncircumscribed and free poet. However, this is Larkin, and like most of Larkin's poems, it's about death in general, and about what the world is like and how, unsatisfactory it is in particular. This is called The Old Fools. It's just a poem about old people growing older and finally dying. What do they think has happened, the old fools, to make them like this? Do they somehow suppose it's more grown up when your mouth hangs open and drools and you keep on pissing yourself and can't remember who called this morning Or that, if they only chose, they could alter things back to when they danced all night, or went to their wedding, or sloped arms some September. Or do they fancy there's really been no change, and they've always behaved as if they were crippled or tight, or sat through days of thin, continuous dreaming, watching light move? If they don't, and they can't, it's strange. Why aren't they screaming? At death, you break up. The bits that were you start speeding away from each other forever, with no one to see. It's only oblivion, true. We had it before, but then it was going to end, and was all the time merging with a unique endeavor to bring to bloom the million-petaled flower of being here. Next time, you can't pretend there'll be anything else, and these are the first signs not knowing how, not hearing who. The power of choosing gone. Their looks show that they're for it. Ash hair, toad hands, pruned face dried into lines. How can they ignore it? Perhaps being old is having lighted rooms inside your head, and people in them acting, people you know yet can't quite name. Each looms like a deep loss restored from known doors turning, setting down a lamp, smiling from a stair, extracting a known book from the shelves, or sometimes only the rooms themselves, chairs and a fire burning, the blown bush at the window, or the sun's faint friendliness on the wall some lonely rain-ceased midsummer evening. That is where they live, Not here and now, but where all happened once. This is why they give an air of baffled absence, trying to be there, yet being here. For the rooms grow farther, leaving incompetent cold, the constant wear and tear of taken breath, and them crouching below, extinctions out, the old fools never perceiving how near it is. This must be what keeps them quiet. The peak that stays in view wherever we go for them is rising ground. Can they never tell what is dragging them back and how it will end, not at night, not when the strangers come, never throughout the whole hideous inverted childhood? Well, we shall find out." That's a very typical Larkin sentiment. Now, the next one is a a very light little poem by John Fuller. Uh, John Fuller is one of the very good um, writers of English verse of a a kind of song-like and mellifluous kind. And, uh, in fact, this poem I'm going to read now, um, I think, has the best qualities that uh, American songwriters have had, uh, people like Cole Porter and so on. It's called Valentine. The things about you I appreciate may seem indelicate. I'd like to find you in the shower and chase the soap for half an hour. I'd like to have you in my power and see your eyes dilate. I'd like to have your back to scour and other parts to lubricate. Sometimes I feel it is my fate to chase you screaming up a tower or make you cower by asking you to differentiate Nietzsche from Schopenhauer. I'd like successfully to guess your weight and win you at a fate I'd like to offer you a flower. I like the hair upon your shoulders, falling like water over boulders. I like the shoulders too, they are essential. Your collarbones have great potential. I'd like all your particulars in folders, marked confidential. I like your cheeks, I like your nose, I like the way your lips disclose, the neat arrangement of your teeth, half above and half beneath in rows. I like your eyes, I like their fringes, the way they focus on me gives me twinges. Your upper arms drive me berserk. I like the way your elbows work on hinges. I like your wrists, I like your glands, I like the fingers on your hands. I'd like to teach them how to count and certain things we might exchange, something familiar for something strange. I'd like to give you just the right amount and get some change. I like it when you tilt your cheek up. I like the way you nod and hold a teacup. I like your legs when you unwind them. Even in trousers, I don't mind them. I like each softly molded kneecap. I like the little crease behind them. I'd always know without a recap where to find them. I like the sculpture of your ears. I like the way your profile disappears whenever you decide to turn and face me. I'd like to cross two hemispheres and have you chase me. I'd like to smuggle you across frontiers or sail with you at night into tangiers. I'd like you to embrace me. I'd like to see you ironing your skirt and canceling other dates. I'd like to button up your shirt. I like the way your chest inflates. I'd like to soothe you when you're hurt or frightened senseless by invertebrates. I'd like you even if you were malign and had a yen for sudden homicide. I'd let you put insecticide into my wine. I'd even like you if you were the bride of Frankenstein or something ghoulish out of Mamoulian's Jekyll and Hyde. I'd even like you as my Julian of Norwich or Catherine of Julian. How dramatic if you were something muttering in attics, like Mrs. Rochester or a student of Boolean mathematics. You are the end of self-abuse. You are the eternal feminine. I'd like to find a good excuse to call on you and find you in. I'd like to put my hand beneath your chin and see you grin. I'd like to taste your Charlotte Russe. I'd like to feel my lips upon your skin. I'd like to make you reproduce. I'd like you in my confidence. I'd like to be your second look. I'd like to let you try the French defense and mate you with my rook. I'd like to be your preference, and hence I'd like to be around when you unhook. I'd like to be your only audience, the final name in your appointment book, your future tense. Now, the next and last poem I'm going to read is by James Fenton, who is the youngest of these poets. He was born in uh, 1949, so therefore he was 30, and 79, so he's not much over 30 now. And uh, this one is a little short poem um, about an imaginary, well, it's an imaginary landscape, but it's an imaginary landscape with people, and it imagines, roughly speaking, that um, we're in a square in some unidentified foreign country, and instead of the bandits and the um, terrorists and so on coming in and causing trouble. Uh, These are all animals that are mentioned. They're they're mostly South American rodents like capybaras and anguantibos and so on and um, I've got very great admiration for this poem because I think it's quite unlike most poems that you find in Britain or America or anywhere else because it has the, the kind of feeling of um, urban unpleasantness and disarray, and even fear. It is actually full of fear, but it's also humorous. It's called The Wild Ones. Here come the capybaras on their bikes. They swerve into the friendly leafy square knocking the Anguantibos off their trikes, giving the old-age Koipoos a bad scare. They specialize in nasty lightning strikes. They leave the banks and grocer's shops quite bare. They then swagger through the bar doors for a shot of anything the barman hasn't got. They spoil the friendly rodent rodeos by rustling the grazing flocks of mice. They wear enormous jackboots on their toes, Insulted by a comment, in a trice, they whip their switchblades out beneath your nose. Their favorite food is elephant and rice. Their personal appearance is revolting. Their fur is never brushed and always molting. And in the evening, when the sun goes down, they take the comely women on their backs and ride for several furlongs out of town, along the muddy roads and mountain tracks, wearing a grim and terrifying frown. Months later, all the females have attacks and call the Koipu doctors to their beds. What's born has dreadful capybara heads.
4: some uh, poems of D.J. Enright. In the first half of the program, I read some from the Terrible Shears, which um, were Enright's highly successful attempt to recreate some of the incidents and feelings of his childhood. But he's a poet of great variety, and the two poems of his that I'd like to read now are completely different from uh, that sequence. I'll read the one first from Paradise Illustrated. This is the, the jokey Enright that isn't in fact my own favorite when I'm reading his poetry, but um, it's such an, uh, uh, an obvious facet of his performance as a poet but I think one has to include it he's done it with the Faust story and in Paradise Illustrated he does it with the Adam and Eve story I'd like to read um, I'm sorry to be a bit defensive about him um, on this uh, point but he has in fact been defensive of himself in a little piece he wrote for the Poetry Book Society Bulletin when This book, Paradise Illustrated, was made the choice of that particular season. The present book aims to illustrate in fairly homely terms the course of events between Adam's naming of the animals and the death of Eve, and to glance sidelong at some of the repercussions, not all of them wholly regrettable, of our fall from grace. There were moments when only Milton's words would do But the poems here are in none but the most blatant sense, Miltonic. Indeed, at times, they approach the mode of the comic strip, though their treatment of these primal matters is not, I hope, entirely flippant. The flash-forwards or anachronistic references to more recent developments are certainly not meant as mockery, but rather as a tribute to the perpetual interest of the story of Adam and Eve. Now, that is the spirit... Um, in which we are supposed to take these poems. I don't always succeed, but... um, I think his own explanation there of the way in which they are to be taken um, is entirely helpful. The days of Adam were 930 years. He sat in the marketplace with the other senior citizens. With Seth, who was just 800, Enos, who was 695, and Methuselah, 630. They're not the men their great-grandfathers were, said Seth. Lamech's kid Noah cries all night, said Enos, howls when they bath it, said Methuselah, the youngest. They've all been spoilt. I blame their mothers. It was different in my day, said Adam. People lived forever then. And from *Sad Eyes*. Oh, I should have given you perhaps the dates of these books. Um, *The Terrible Shears* was the earliest of the three I'm reading from. In fact, seventy-three. *Paradise Illustrated* was in seventy-eight, and *Sad Eyes* came out in seventy-five. So these are all poems from the seventies. This is one that um, I admire particularly because of its rhythm. It is a subject that appeals to me very much too in cemeteries, but it seems to me that rhythmically it's quite beautifully done and I hope I'll do it justice, I'll try. In cemeteries, this world a veil of soul-making, to what intent the finished wares? Is the ore enforced and fired through harsh mills only to fall aside? Who is this soul master? What say do souls have in their made futures? We mourn the untried young, unmade in small coffins. What have grown graves? At times in cemeteries, You hear their voices, sad and even-toned. Almost see the made souls in their curious glory, if you are old. The two poems by Douglas Dunn that I read in the first half came from Terry Street. The two I'd like to read now come from Barbarians, which was published in a note I can't immediately find, um, seventy, seventy-nine. 79, Douglas Dunn has been accused of intense and overt political commitment in Barbarians, I say accused because um, because he denies it, it was not his intention, therefore any um, misrepresentation does become a kind of accusation. He has said, in a most engaging way, that um, he's more um, a wishy-washy liberal, and that if anybody tries to make a Trotskyist out of them, um, they're barking up entirely the wrong tree. I mention this because the first poem I'd like to read from barbarians is called gardeners and there is indeed a situation here which does sound overtly and violently political but um, that's not entirely the way he means it. Gardeners England Loamshire 1789 a gardener speaks in the grounds of a great house to his lordship. Gardens, gardens, and we are gardeners. Raised hedgerows, flowers, those planted trees whose avenues conduct a greater ease of shadow to your own and lady's skins and tilt this nature so magnificence and natural, to to magnificence and natural delight. But pardon us, my lord, if we reluctantly admit our horticulture, not the whole of it. Forgetting that for you, this eloquent, this elegance is not our work, but your far tidier sense. Out of humiliation comes that sweet humility that does no good. We know our coarser artistries will make things grow. Others design the craftsmanship we fashion to please your topographical possession. A small humiliation... Yes, we eat, our crops and passions tucked out of the view across a shire, the name of which is you, where every native creature runs upon hills, moors, and meadows, which your named eyes own. Our eyes are nameless, generally turned towards the earth our fingers sift all day. Your day, your earth, your eyes wearing away not earth, eyes, days, but scouring, forcing down what lives in us and which you cannot own. One of us heard the earth cry out. It spurned his hands. It threw stones in his face. We found that man, my lord, and he was mad. We bound his hands together and we heard him say, not me, not me who cries we took away that man remember lord and then we turned hearing your steward order us return his oaths and how you treated us with scorn they call this grudge let me hear you admit that in the country that's but half of it townsmen will wonder when your house was burned we did not burn we did not burn your gardens and undo what likes of us did for the likes of you. We did not raise this garden that we made, although we hanged you somewhere in its shade. And finally, um, Elegy for the Lost Parish. And I think the keynote of this poem is a sort of um, well, a, a sort of pretense, really, at sentimentality, which is an odd thing to pretend at. But I think it uh, makes the point of the poem. I would call this a far from sentimental poem, but it does use the trappings of sentimentality quite deliberately. Uh, Douglas Dunn made a play, um, which was uh, which was on television. I think I didn't see it myself. Um, about this subject um, after he wrote this poem which shows that it was um, a theme, a feeling which was, uh, in which he was closely involved at this time Elegy for the Lost Parish Dream, ploughman, of what agriculture brings Your eggs, your bacon to your greasy plate Then listen to the evening's thrush that sings exhilarated sadness and the intimate. Your son's in Canada, growing his wheat on fields the size of farms, and prosperous on grain and granary. His worlds replete with life and love and house and happiness. Dream, Ploughman, of the lovely girl who died so many summers gone whose face will come to you, call to you, and be deified in sunlight on one-cut chrysanthemum. A nod of nettles flutters its green dust across small fields where you have mown the hay. So wipe your brow, as on a scented gust your past flies in and will not go away. Dream, ploughman, of old characters you've known, who taught you things of scythe and horse and plough, of fields prepared, seed rhythmically sown, their ways of work that are forgotten now. Remember, sir, and let them come to you out of your eye to mutter requiem, praising fidelities, the good of you. Allow their consolations, cherish them into a privacy. As with hands slow shake, you reach towards your glass. Your hands reach to where no one is or can be. Heartbreak. Heartbreak and loneliness of virtue.
5: I'd like to um, read... Uh, two poems by John Ormond and two poems by Vernon Scammell. Now, John Ormond uh, is, um, used to write a long time ago under the name of John Ormond Thomas. And at that time, when he was very young, he sat at the feet of uh, Dylan Thomas. And uh, the poems he wrote, I think, were very bad, were really a pastiche of uh, Dylan Thomas. And then after um, 20 years or so of silence, he published a book in Wales, Uh, by a small Welsh press, which um, I thought was uh, uh, very exciting. And then, uh, later on, a book which uh, Oxford University Press published, which I have in my hand, called Definition of a Waterfall. His poems um, return us to this world very much. Um, They're not about uh, occult matters like church histories or whatever, uh, but very much about human beings. Uh, The first poem... uh, is called, to so an extension of that uh, biographical notice, it were, called My Grandfather and His Apple Tree. Life sometimes held such sweetness for him as to engender guilt. From the night vein he'd come, from working in water, wrestling the coal up the pit slant. Every morning hit him like a journey of trams between the eyes a wild and drinking farm boy sobered by love of a miller's daughter and a whitewashed cottage suddenly to pay rent for so he'd left the farm for dark under the fields six days a week with mandrel and shovel and different stalls all light was beckoning soon his hands untangled a brown garden into neat greens there was an apple tree he limed made sturdy The fruit was sweet and crisp upon the tongue until it budded temptation in his mouth. Now he had given up whistling on Sundays, attended prayer meetings, added a concordance to his wedding Bible and ten children to the village population. He nudged the line, clean pinafored and collared, glazed with soap every seventh day of rest in Ebenezer shaved on a Saturday night to escape the devil. The sweetness of the apples worried him. He took a branch of cooker from a neighbour. When he became a deacon, wanting the best of both his worlds, clay from the colliery he thumbed about the hole one afternoon, grafting the sour to sweetness, bound up the bleeding white of Junction with broad strips of working flannel shirt and belly band to join the two in union. For a time, after the wound healed, the sweetness held, the balance tilted towards an old delight. But in the time that I remember him, his wife had long since died, I never saw her, the sour half took over. Every single apple grew across twenty Augusts, bitter as wormwood. He'd sit under the box tree, his pink gums, grinding the slices that his jackknife hit, sucking for sweetness vainly. It had gone, gone. I heard him mutter quiet Welsh oaths as he spat the gall juice into the seeding onion bed, watching him toss the big core into the spreading nettles. The um, second poem is um, one called Phoebe They climbed on sketchy ladders towards God with winch and pulley, hoisted hewn rock into heaven, inhabited sky with hammers, defied gravity, deified stone, took up God's house to meet him, and came down to their suppers and small beer. Every night slept, lay with their smelly wives, quarreled and cuffed the children, lied, spat, sang, were unhappy or unhappy and every day took to the ladders again, impeded the rights of way of another summer's swallows. Grey grew grew greyer, shakier, became less inclined to fix a neighbor's roof of a fine evening. Saw knaves sprout arches, clerestories saw, cursed the loud fancy glaziers for their luck, somehow escaped the plague, got rheumatism, decided it was time to give it up, to leave the spire to others stood in the crowd well back from the vestments of the consecration envied the fat bishop his warm boots cocked up a squint eye and said I bloody did that the second poet uh, Vernon uh, Scannell tends to be a, a narrative poet and uh, very often the sort of poems he writes are, um, remind me of, of uh, the kind of novels that Graham Greene might write. Uh, here's one, for instance, taken in adultery. Shattered by shades and spied upon by glass. This all takes place in an English pub. Shattered by shades. I think I have to use my glasses. (laughs) Shattered by shades and spied upon by glass. Their search for privacy conducts them here with an irony that neither notices to a public house the wrong time of the year for outdoor games. Where, over gin and tonic, best bitter and potato crisps, they talk without much zest, almost laconic, flipping an occasional remark. Would you guess that they were lovers, this dull pair? The answer, I suppose, is yes, you would. Despite her spectacles and faded hair and his worn look of being someone's dad, "'you know that they are having an affair, "'and neither finds it doing them much good. "'Presumably in one another's eyes "'they must look different from what we see, "'desirable in some way, "'otherwise they'd hardly choose to come here "'furtively and mutter their bleak needs "'above the mess of fag ends, "'crumpled cellophane and crumbs, "'their love feast litter. "'Though they might profess to find great joy together, All that comes across to us is tiredness, melancholy. When they are silent, each seems listening. There must be many voices in the air, reproaches, accusations, suffering that no amount of passion keeps elsewhere. Imperatives that brought them to this room, stiff from the car's back seat, lose urgency. They start to wonder who's betraying whom, how it will end, and how did it begin the woman taken in adultery and the man who feels he too was taken in and the other kind of poem that uh, Vernon Scandal often writes is um, one about his war experiences uh, and here's a poem that I particularly like and which seems to grow as it gathers towards his conclusion. It's called Walking Wounded. And I'll conclude with this. A mammoth morning moved grey flanks and groaned. In the rusty hedges pale rags of mist hung. The gruel of mud and leaves in the mall lane smelled sweet like blood. Birds had died or flown, their green and silent attic sprouting now with branches of leaf steel, hiding round eyes and ripe grenades ready to drop and burst. In the ditch at the crossroads, the fallen rider lay, hugging his dead machine and did not stir at crunch of motor, tantrum of a brain, answering a spandau's manic jabber. Then into sight the ambulances came, stumbling and churning, past the broken farm, the amputated signposts and smashed trees, slow wagonloads of bandaged cries, square trucks that rolled on ominous wheels, vehicles made mythopoeic by their mortal freight and crimson crosses on the dirty white. This grave procession passed, though for a while the grinding of their engines could be heard, a dark noise on the pallor of the morning, dark as dried blood and then it faded, died. The road was empty, but it seemed to wait, like a stage which knows the cast is in the wings, wait for a different traffic to appear. The mist still hung in snags from dripping thorns, absent-minded guns still sighed and thumped, and then they came, the walking wounded straggling the road like convicts loosely chained, dragging at ankles, exhaustion and despair. Their heads were weighted down by last night's lead, and eyes still drank the dark. They trailed the night along the morning road. Some limped on sticks. Others wore rough dressings, splints and slings. A few had turbaned heads, the dirty cloth, brown badge with blood. A humble brotherhood. Not one was suffering from a lethal hurt, they were not magnified by noble wounds. There was no splendor in that company. And yet remembering after eighteen years in the heart throat a sour sadness stirs, imagination pauses and returns to see them walking still, but multiplied in thousands now. And when heroic corpses turn slowly in their decorated sleep and every ambulance has disappeared, the walking wounded still trudge down that lane, and when recalled, they must bear arms again.
4: Thank you very much. Tonight there will be a forum at New York University um, called British Perspectives, a discussion of English poetry today which will be led by Richard Howard, the um, noted poet and translator. Donnie Absey, Patricia Beer, Gavin Ewart and Craig Green, who you've heard read today, will be participating in this discussion. It's at eight o'clock and I have formal invitations to give you the exact address. Thank you.
3: Wolf, uh, the it's a I, know, I like
1: those seedy poems of, uh, in the, you know, inside the pub, they like that